welcome to the Scots We Hey podcast. In this edition, I talked to Louise Welsh about her latest novel, No Dominion, which is the final part in her Plague Times trilogy. The first novel of the trilogy was A Lovely Way to Burn, and I think that was roughly about five years ago, to be followed by Death as a Welcome Guest. And as a fan of both those books, I've been looking forward to No Dominion for some time. There will be a full review up on the website shortly, but the short version is anyone else who's been looking forward to it will not be disappointed. It was great to have Louise back on. I think the last time she was on the podcast, it must be about three years ago, um, talking all things Empire Cafe. Yeah, 2014, that'll be about right. So, I will say no more. I will let you listen to the lovely Louise Welsh, and I'll see you on the other side of this. Hello everyone, and welcome to another Scots Way podcast. And today I'm joined by one of our favourite guests, who we haven't seen for a while, Louise Welsh. Hello Louise. Hello. Um, we're here to talk about the publishing of No Dominion, which is the final book in your Plague Times trilogy. Um, but before we talk about No Dominion, I think it'd be good to have a little story so far. How did we get to No Dominion? Well, the Plague Times trilogy is uh, a contemporary story about a pandemic. Um, so it begins in London with a lovely way to burn. And at the centre of that first novel is Stevie Flint, and Stevie works for uh, one of these shopping channels, you know, where if you, you switch it on and you find yourself with your credit card in one hand and the telephone in the other hand, you know you're in a bad place. So Stevie sells uh, this kind of stuff, what we used to call swag mm-hmm. when I worked on markets, things that uh, nobody really needs, you know, yeah. but you have a lot of it. So you sell this stuff cheaply, um, but she's doing it in a more high-powered way. A plague hits the world, I guess, um, and we don't know how many people it wipes out, you know, but it's it's a, a high-octane, frenetic story. And the story is partly um, about the death of Stevie's boyfriend, who is a doctor, and uh, it asks the question to a degree, what happens when something like the NHS becomes completely unvalued? Big Pharma can make a lot of money through drugs, and uh, there's opportunities for corruption. So... There's a, a couple of, as usual, there's a few plots on the go um, and it's set partly in these uh, labyrinthine medical places, you know, it's set in hospitals and so forth. Um, a lot of scenes on the underground in London, a lot of tucked away places, but really starting in one of the big world cities of our time. The second book, mm-hmm. uh, we, we don't really see Stevie in that book until the end, I suppose, and at its centre is an Arcadian comedian, <laughs> which rhymes rhymes nicely. And his name is Magnus McFall. Magnus has lived in London for a long time. He's on the eve of what may be a big breakthrough. He yeah. doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I guess the action in that book runs uh, parallel to the action in A Lovely Way to, to Burn in yeah. terms of time. Um, Magnus, when the... The plague hits when the sweats, the pandemic, mm-hmm. hits London, is uh, incarcerated. He's in Pentonville Prison. Um, and the question is, what happens if you're locked up? 
when the plague hits. Uh, it also occupies the world of religious zealotry. Yes. <laughs> so these two characters are uh, each introduced in the first two books, and in the final book, we see them in the same place. Yeah, that's how I've I kind of think of them. You know, I think of a lovely way to burn is Stevie's book. Um, Death is a welcome guest is Magnus's book, and now it's their book together. Yeah. If you say that they are the kind of um, heroes of the peace, for one of a better yeah. word. Um, when we spoke before about um, the the kind of things that had inspired um, the trilogy, I remember you mentioning programs like Survivors and Threads and things that. Um, an impending, um, particularly nuclear holocaust was, was ahead. Um, and then what I felt was, within in Death as a Welcome Guest, there was influences of things like maybe The Wicker Man and The Crucible and, and The Children of the Corn. Um, in terms of No Dominion, was there was anything like that that you touched upon that was influential, did you feel? Um, I think certainly all of those influences are still there. You mm-hmm. know, that that idea of what happens when the the world goes awry, when uh, when things are really out of kilter, um, and still thinking about people like H.G. Wells, uh, John Wyndham, you know, the, the, the Day of the Triffids, all of these things really play into my mindset, I yeah. think. Um, I guess also it might sound a bit silly, but uh, this is a book that travels across Scotland... Um, so there are quite a lot of Scottish influences. Uh, still thinking about Edwin Muir, who mm-hmm. I've thought about since the beginning of this book. Interesting. Um, mm. And that uh, that poem, which a lot of people studied at school, I came to it much later, but The Horses, I think that's yes. an amazing poem. But also Muir's Scottish journey, the way that he's travelled through the landscape. I'm doing the journey, I mean, a truncated journey and in reverse. Um, but the, the book's underpinned, I think, by socialist principles as... Muir's work as mm-hmm. as well, um, and also kidnapped that running through the Scottish landscape, um, which is a book that I've always loved, and I've always loved the way that Stevenson Stevenson doesn't really do a lot of description of landscape, yeah, and yet you see it in your mind, yes, as the as Alan Breck and David Balfour hurtle through it. So you know the, this is me looking retrospectively, I didn't sit down and think, I want to draw and kidnapped. But uh, thinking of it afterwards, those influences are maybe there. I think that's really interesting because Stevenson doesn't do that. He doesn't um, go into great detail about um, uh, every nook and cranny and hill. But you do absolutely get a strong sense of place. And I think it's the same, uh, particularly in Orkney, where this begins, uh, no, Dominion begins. Now, um, I've never been to Orkney, but you immediately get the sense of um, this small community because it's now a community of survivors, I suppose, mm-hmm. that, who, who, you know, are, are trying to keep themselves separate from the mainland and whatever is still, you know, horrors are still going on there. And it's things like um, the entertainment being around one small pub and the fact that they're... Um, someone will go up and, and, and sing a song and that the children are now teenagers. It's little details. And even that the, the Stella is now out of date or mm-hmm. things like that. You think, well, this one, it's got a community that's been together for a while, but there's still a sense that they're feeling their way with each other and, and, and a fear of what might come from the outside. Absolutely, yeah. 
And is that what you, you wanted to build, the fact that we'd moved from, from London, we'd moved through the country, you know, ever moving further north, and that perhaps the safest place to be in this situation, not only as an island, but the very most remote island that you could get to? I think so. I think I, I chose Orkney for many reasons. It's, um, it's a place where I've never lived, but I've been to many times. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, there's a remoteness there. I do think if you're going to do set something somewhere, set it somewhere that you want to go. Set it somewhere that you want to research. And so to go to Orkney to again to research this was a, a pleasure, really. Um, but also I wanted uh, islands. So the Orkney Islands, Orkney itself, mainland Orkney, has a lot of people on it. Yeah. Uh, and it has a good infrastructure. It has ferries obviously arriving from all over the place daily. It has flights coming in mm-hmm. daily. So I wanted somewhere that uh, previously had had this good infrastructure and a decent-sized population, and yet, you know, like the rest of the world, like London and Beijing and all of these world cities, it's now reduced to just a few folk. And I did think that remote places, uh, you know, physically remote from Mm. centres, because, of course, nowhere's remote if you're there, that people might gravitate towards it for those reasons of uh, safety, safety. so, yeah, I did. I wanted that slight contradiction and also a place that uh, you can feel the ancient world there, mm-hmm. you know, because there's the archaeology is so amazing. So we have the Stones of Stennis and Scarabray and Maze Howe and, you know, the, these places that you can feel that connection with the past and with past civilizations that have lived and disappeared. And in this book, the civilization that we're living in, now is one of those civilizations as well. It's gone, um, much to the, the sadness of the people that remain. Yeah, I think it's something I think that's run through all three is, you know, what happens when society begins to break down? And you're saying in the second book, um, fundamental religion came into it. Um, and then you've also got some of the older belief systems, you know, going back to the idea of, I guess it's, again, referring to a lot of Scottish literature from the past, but what, you know, the, the reverting back to the land and the sea and the positives and the negatives that come with those. Now, it's quite a few years, is it seven years after yes, the end of Yeah, that? seven years since the, the last book, but in, in, the, in the fiction. Yes, in the fiction, yeah. <laughs> um, could you say a bit more about how the community on... Um, Orkney has come to be the way it is because you've got the children and you've got adults and they are from the outside families but then you start to learn a bit more about how these families were put together. Yeah I guess um, no, but there are no blood relations left yeah. so the, the plague has been such that uh, there, there are no husbands and wives who came through the plague together, who came through the sweats together. So any relationship is a new one that's developed since then. Uh, And the same goes for most of the children. All of the teenagers have been um, orphaned and each of them is looked after or fostered by people who weren't... You know, so this, this idea of relationships being rather new. Of course, when you're a child... Seven years is rather a long time. Course, so, yeah. so if you're five, or you know that that uh, feels hopefully like your 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 blood relatives. These are strong relationships, um, but there is a 
kind of, what would you call it, a discontent amongst the children mm -hmm. who have become teenagers. Yeah. And teenagers... Yeah, exactly. It's a natural thing, and it's a natural thing at that age to kick against. But the children are also kind of furious about the technology that's gone. They're mm -hmm. furious and um, that the adults experienced and knew this technology, stuff that we all take for granted, and yet they don't know how to reproduce it or how to fix it. And to the children, this seems um, a bit careless that mm -hmm. they never took the time to find out about how the internal combustion engine works or how the internet works or all of these great things. Yeah, I think there's a lovely bit right at the very beginning where they talk about educating the children. And, I mean, you can only really educate people in what you know. And, of course, this is a generation that might have started to use technology but doesn't know how it works, certainly, yeah, you know. No. So, and, and you've got our generation who, if things had, hadn't gone the way they had and if the sweats hadn't occurred would have been it would have been second nature to them to use these things so they can teach them a little bit of um you know of english and, and language and anything that they have a little bit of music here and there but really what they want is the you know the new stuff the the things that were just becoming to they would get to know and then that was taken away as well it's all gone and i guess that's the part maybe part of my love letter to to here you know to now that we have these wonderful things, we have these great things, and sure, some of it can be used badly. Mm -hmm. But when we think of the way the internet can bring people together, bring communities and interest groups together, help uh, knowledge find each other, you know, and uh, advance things wonderfully, mm -hmm. or even just help you send a recipe to your friend. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a, or keep in touch, you know, across the seas. It is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And yet, it may as well be magic, you know, mm -hmm. for all that I know about how it works. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I do use it quite casually. And if it breaks, I go to the shop and ask somebody, you know, if they would mend it for me. Um, I wondered if, I mean, I guess in, in, the, in island communities, there was always that desire, maybe not always, but particularly maybe in the last um, 50, 60 years, to want to go to the bright lights in the big city, to want to maybe at least try the promise of something better being not on the island. And maybe, I mean, it happens in everywhere where people say, I want to leave home. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. to some that might be just into the centre of town rather than, you know, leaving um, behind a, 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 an actual island space or, or um, somewhere where it's not as easy to get to as it might be elsewhere. It's true, I think, and yet when you go to islands... You will find that people there are, are very well travelled, of mm -hmm, course, you mm -hmm. know, and for somewhere like Orkney, people uh, go all the way, you know, it's not much, but there's just the sea between you and America, yeah. really, isn't there? You know, and people, uh, I was, I've just finished my term as president of the Olipo Book Festival. Yeah. Every year they have uh, Canadian writers, they have such a strong connection with Nova Scotia. Uh, so, you know, those mm -hmm. Canadian connections, American connections, connections to Norway and the Scandinavian world. So I think for us, coming for the central belt, we can go to these places and think, oh, how remote, but actually they're connected in real and actual ways yeah. in terms that uh, that we perhaps don't realise on the first casual viewing. There are great travellers there. Um, and yet, I thought, I thought as well about George Mackay Brown, and I can't remember uh, the quote exactly, but he says something like, you know, if you stay where you were, are, 
what you need will come to you. Mm -hmm. And he's a man who doesn't really travel widely, comes down to Edinburgh um, and stay, you know, with, to work. Uh, oh, he's, uh, what's that? Is it, what's that college just outside Edinburgh that people can go um, for further education? Is it New Battle? Is it no, I'm not sure. Well, Edwin Muir is the, the headmaster there at the mm -hmm. time, so there's that connection. But George Mackay Brown doesn't travel much out with that, and he gets one of these great uh, scholarships, he's one of these great travelling scholarships, and he takes the money and he goes to an Orkney island that he hasn't been to before. Mm -hmm. He's not interested in going to Beijing or, or something. Um, so there's probably both exist, don't they, in that idea Absolutely. of being content where you are and finding your, your themes... Uh, and your stories there is, is a, a great one. Maybe all you need to do is look at the same square of grass and you'll find all of these stories. And yet for other people, they have to set out mm -hmm. before they can come back. I think I was just um, considered there was this, um, and perhaps it was a stereotype at the time, but that, that there was a, a drain of um, youth from mm. at the highlands and islands. Um, and I think that in some ways is reversed a, a bit, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly there was a fear among the communities that, you know, people would leave and perhaps never come back. And then yeah. that would be, you know, we know the histories of some of the islands that, oh, you know, yeah. you just could not survive. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how much that's economic as well, yes. you know, because we have uh, the particular villages um, that were born in Lismore, which was completely tied to uh, the lime, lime which at that point they needed for cement, uh, which of course you need to build all these fantastic tenements that we have yeah. in the central belt. But when the lime industry goes, when that technology changes, this village is no longer needed. So some places exist mm -hmm. for a finite time, don't they? Um, but maybe all that new technology that we, we're talking about is enabling people to have all sorts of uh, other businesses and other lives in places that are geographically remote, from where we are yeah. just now. Not everybody has to go to Edinburgh, Glasgow, or Aberdeen, or Dundee, or whatever. Yeah, can publishers can set up, and you know, yeah. why not? Or yeah. anyone can set up a business and do that. Yeah, and that acceptance, or you know, of the uh, of the newcomer as well, because there's a wee bit of swapsies going on, isn't mm -hmm. there? People coming from the Highlands and Islands down to the Central Belt and elsewhere, you know, across the world, and people coming from elsewhere and going to the Highlands and Islands, and that seems rather healthy. Um, the other thing we're talking about, um, knowledge and, and skills, I suppose, is that when um, there is a reconnection with the mainland, one of the things that comes up is what skills are valued and what perhaps... Um, if hard labour has to be done, who do you put to hard labour? And then you've got the people who have, perhaps even they were old skills, like how you mine, how you farm, how you, you do all these things. Um, uh, and the people who are, you know, computer analysts and, and all of, you know, hairdressers and, and things like that, when society breaks down, these no longer become as important as they once were. To... Oh, I take issue with the hairdressers. <laughs> <laughs> I still need a good haircut. Um, <laughs> or a beard trim. I, I guess what made me think about hairdressers was in a, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the middle um, ship that's sent off first, and they say to, to start a new planet, is the one with, I think it's 
hairdressers, phone hygienists, and <laughs> someone else about middle management, and yet the other two ships that the top people they stay and they send these people off <laughs> to set up for them. To set up, yeah. Yeah, but I guess uh, Magnus himself, Magnus is, as I say, an Arcadian, and he's uh, come from a, a family that do know how to do things, and Magnus doesn't want to do that stuff, but he can do it when the chips are down. And by the time we meet him in the final book, he's reinvented, you know, he's embraced this. He can keep stock, he can uh, fish, he can do these quite mm-hmm. important things that have become very important uh, just to stay alive. Uh, but I guess perhaps it's an expression of how useless I feel. You know, the skills that I have are not actually, when the chips are down, I, just, I wouldn't be that that I could write a story about what was going on <laughs> but, but I, I don't know that it'd be so helpful and I remember meeting an Inuit uh, guy many years ago now in Canada again and him say, he was a poet, good poet and he said well my father could fish and make a house and do all these things but me mm, mm-hmm. I can write a good poem you know I can write a poem about it and he I think was thinking about going back and trying to learn some of these skills that he felt he'd let go um, and then he'd probably write some poems about them <laughs> <laughs> but then you've got Stevie as you say who worked on uh, the shopping channels and did these kind of things and she um, by the time we meet her again at the beginning of New Dominion is the president of the artist yeah well that's it isn't it some people come the moment come the man or woman you know and she's she's found herself and there's a she doesn't have it's hard to, for her to to feel a triumph in that because, of course, this the way that she's found herself is uh, because so many people died. Yeah. So there's an un, an uncomfortableness there for her. Uh, but as you say, in Orkney, in this book, they're trying to make uh, a democracy, a, a kind of equal society. And that's not easy to do, you know. It's no. not easy to do because everybody's different. People have their own interests uh, not everybody embraces equality um, but uh, but of course there are many and there are many different ways of being um, what struck me was though she discovers through I think particularly in, in latterly in the first book that she um, she can deal with violence quite well she's pretty good at looking after herself which she didn't realise until being forced to kind of confront this yeah. and it comes through again in, in, in No Dominion, she yeah. can look after herself Yeah and it's uh, I think Stevie has been quite a moral person mm-hmm. she is moral but she's also a survivor, you know a real mm-hmm. survivor and there's an uncomfortableness with surviving, isn't there? Yeah. Some people... There's a guilt that goes with it Yeah and even if you're uh, somebody that... Phew, a natural disaster happens, you're standing in the right place and you survive through no effort of your own. You just yeah. happen to be standing in the right place and people well, people around you weren't, you know, and they died. But Stevie's a, an active survivor. Mm-hmm. She's somebody who's... She, her will to live is very, very strong and uh, she's somebody that's killed to survive. Yeah. Uh, and so, that yeah, now that she has time to reflect on it in the moment she doesn't have time to reflect on it but after the event she does and she's not she's not necessarily triumphant about that no she's no not, she's not she's absolutely not happy. yeah uh, so she starts off as somebody who's gym fit and she's also a salesperson she's got the power of persuasion yes. you know the gift of the gab 
Um, and these are things that help her to survive. But underneath it all, there's a morality. And there's a couple of points in this book where she does, one point in particular, where she does something to survive. And it's uh, morally problematic what mm-hmm. she does. So that idea of pushing people and seeing uh, that you will do things that are morally problematic in the moment, um, I think probably applies to most of us. I think, again, a theme which runs through all three books is this idea of what happens to an idea of a shared morality when society is, is breaking down like this, where are lines drawn and then redrawn? And it particularly hits home, I think, um, in terms of no, dom- no dominion. There's a couple of relationships, and I don't want to spoil things, so I'm not going to go into too much details, but um, the first one I'm thinking of it's almost as if someone is being used as for, um, that popular term now, handmaiden. You know, mm-hmm. she's been introduced um, to a situation where her potential is uh, is in no way equal to the people who have bought her, basically, mm-hmm. who have bought mm-hmm. her. And then we have um, Ivan and Briar when we get um, further on in the book. And... Um, you have uh, an older man and a younger, um, and we don't know whether, we don't know her gender. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we ever do, mm-hmm. the gender. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know how much I can say about that without spoiling anything. So, But I, it was, I was interested because you have Marcus's reaction to both relationships there and he is reacting in the standards or the rules of what was in place before the sweats came along. And I guess one of the questions that, you, that the reader asks is, how does that change when, you know, the usual situations don't apply anymore? Yeah, well, I think... Uh, I think we always have people who are stronger who prey off people who are weaker. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that, that often is people who aren't... Uh, old enough to know that they're being preyed on. Mm. And we see that going on, you know, in our society as well. Um, And I think very much when things break down, uh, young people are very vulnerable. You know, they're vulnerable anyway, but when you've got, you don't have people to look out for you. uh, And when the rule of law breaks down, um, and you see it, you know, in the, the migrant camps, or the so-called migrant camps, you know, think, things like that. Young people are disappearing all the time. Mm-hmm. Young people are getting taken away by people who promise them uh, a good life, or even just some kind of comfort, actually. Yeah. And we see it with homeless uh, people, young and, you know, and perhaps a little bit older, who horrible. People offering them beds for the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, a price, you know, so these things gone in our society as well oh, of course and I guess uh, I guess part of what I wanted to think about is um, the, f- the forms of exploitation that would take place and how uh, how yeah how they manifest yeah. themselves and I guess that's allied to the idea of the structures of society so um, we move from the democracy a fledgling democracy which is very on shaky feet, you know, yeah. already it's on shaky feet. Um, and we, we see different forms. So uh, feudalism, um, anarchy, uh, despotism, and uh, the idea of slavery 
is as we get closer and closer to the cities and this idea of uh, re-establishing technology and some kind of comfort, the lack of technology is part of what leads to uh, exploitation. So we have sexual exploitation, but also just the exploitation of labour. Yeah. And that idea that some people, uh, some people are regarded as being of more use just toiling in the, you know, toiling yeah. than, uh, and that this is just, this is just the new world order. Um, and how do we feel about that? And the justification that comes behind it to say, no, this is, we are now offering something that no matter how bad it is, it was better than what they had before. And you think, oh, well, yeah. that's no justification, really. Yeah, and it's a justification that's always used, yes, isn't it? You know, and we hear it here if you're buying. But it's, it's all, it's, it's hugely complicated. Yeah. But the only, the only, I remember we did an event, an Empire Cafe event, with uh, Aidan McQuaid of Anti-Slavery Alliance, and Aidan said something very wise. You know, he said, we can talk about boycotting pre-mark or, or don't buy this or don't buy that. He said, but really what we need are new structures. And, you know, if it makes you feel better as an individual, sure, boycott, that's fine, that's mm-hmm. okay. And it did, you know, helped hugely in South Africa and things. Yeah. But actually, of course, what you really need is a new structure with these things are not allowed to happen. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is a, a structure in this book where it is allowed to happen. Because I, th- I thought of issues of slavery and particularly of refugees, the idea that um, the promised land that you have seen, whether it's in films or on television or in adverts or whatever, um, would make you go through... Um, the worst dangers to get to the promise of that, mm-hmm. and that in itself is is, is an exploitation. Um, you know that you know, that that is being sold something that is really never achievable for the people that will come over if they make it as far as that. And, that. and that's what I thought about uh, in parts in a what happens in the second half of uh, No No Dominion. Um, now, I, we can cut this if we don't want to. Can we see we finish in Glasgow? Is that all right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, so were you always going to... I'm interested in how far ahead you were working. Were you always going to finish in Glasgow? Yeah, the geography was always... From the very first book, that was the geography of the journey. So to begin in London, to travel kind of Middle England, you know, some vague mm-hmm. spot in Middle England, and then to start the last book in the... Orkneys and then to come down mm-hmm. to Glasgow, uh, back down to the central belt. Um, and again, I guess the idea of the idea of the post-industrial city was quite important to me. Um, that thinking about Glasgow in its geographical form, you know, we're settled here because it's a is a fertile valley. It's a valley next to this river, but also the industrial wealth of Glasgow coming again partly from this river, this widened and dredged river that has uh, that connection again with going to America with the, and the Caribbean, with the, the slave trade, with uh, the blockade runners, you mm-hmm. know, with keeping... So all of that, that stuff was kind of important. And I guess also, you know, the reason... One of the reasons I wanted to set at Norton, as I said, is because I like going there. <laughs> and Glasgow's the city where... I live, you know, I love living here. I've lived here since 1985 and uh, I don't know why it would be my delight to walk around the city and imagine it 
devastated and derelict, <laughs> but somehow, somehow it was, you know, to walk through this in Enoch Centre and think, how would this be if it was if everything fell apart? You know, Have all you of that seen stuff. The film called Doomsday. No. I must lend you a copy now. Doomsday is um, something happens in uh, Scotland and they rebuild the wall, but they put it all around. Scotland and then after a certain period of time folk are sent back in to check that everything's okay and they go into Glasgow and they go along um, now which street is it West George Street anyway going up towards Goma and then you've got set, you've got Queen Street Station and it is overrun and and, uh-huh. and just to see those and it's a terrible film but to see those scenes of Glasgow being as you say desolate and it, it's quite interesting to see there's something uh Maybe, yeah, there's something very beautiful in desolation, but only in the imagination. Yes, <laughs> yeah, because apparently you have all these amazing buildings, which, you know, I mean, the, the city chambers itself is, is an incredible um, uh, centrepiece to have for anything like that. It is, and, you know, and we both remember when uh, when you did still see sort of bomb damage, didn't you? Mm-hmm. You did see those big gable ends with the... The wallpaper and, and yeah, yeah, and the pictures practically still on the wall and big gap sites and you know, Glasgow doesn't always look after its architecture in the no. way that it does. We can all think about think of beautiful derelict buildings, you know that uh, that yeah the facade is there but not much else. I wondered if and I think you've maybe answered this already, but the reason for bringing it back to Glasgow as well is the, the kind of political history that it's had. But then you still that's almost being used as justification for what's going on. Like you have um, what the the people who are in charge might argue is well, look, everyone's got a job. I make sure everyone's got a job and they're looked after, and everyone is in inverted commas fed uh-huh. and all of this where actually you know the bigger picture is there is exploitation you know from the top to the bottom yeah I guess and also I guess that's uh, that's part of it, that sort of ben- so called benevolent dictatorship there's, there's not very much benevolent about it when mm. it comes down to it um, and I think things like uh, being able to picture it very clearly in my mind's eye you yeah. know, being able to see George Square and all those demonstrations we've gone to in George Square and, and there's there's a pleasure in using your own city. You, Absolutely. Yeah, and you hope that people that haven't been to the city can imagine it in their own way. But uh, but I think you do that very well. Again, um, there's directions of you go down there to the river. You don't go yeah you go down this street to that street to do that. You know you go down there to the river and I mean obviously I know it so I can kind of um, work my way out. But I think if you didn't. If you came to start in George Square, you could probably work your way around and you would certainly find your way to the fish market or yes. to anything like that. <laughs> I guess um, I guess it's that Stevenson thing and I'm trying increasingly to leave space for the reader. You know, yeah. you leave enough, but you don't fill all the space because yeah. then people can't... They need to invest with their own imagination, um, which is part of the wonderful, immersive thing about reading, isn't it, that you... You construct it, you yeah, build it, you see exactly. it, without even knowing that you're doing it. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful exercise in the imagination. Um, now, is it five years since the first book? Is that right? Something like Something that. Like you that, know, I have yeah. very little grasp of time. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's five years, yeah. But the reason I ask is because, um, I mean, I don't think... There's not been many five years periods where the world has changed quite as it has in the last five years. I know, I know. I mean, how did you, when you came to write No Dominion, did you think, well, do I take 
that on board or do I leave that aside or what did you I mean whether it's politically or, or even um, a, in terms of technology or things like that you know it's yeah. just changed so incredibly the technology not so much um, but the political situation yeah it did and um, I was in New Zealand when I was on a fellowship in New Zealand when Brexit uh, hit and uh, Zoe Strachan my partner and I who were both there and thank goodness we'd both done proxy votes. You know, mm. we did have our friend Carol voted for us because uh, I would have felt very bad if we hadn't managed to put her vote down. Um, we voted to, you know, remain uh, in Europe, obviously. So it was a it was a bit of a surprise, yeah. Yeah. A big surprise. Um, that, I guess, and uh, the American election, you know... I, I did what I always do. I listened to the radio through the night on the you know in the headphones, and I heard the Florida vote, and I just then you knew, you know. So yeah, it has. It took longer. It took me about six months longer than I yeah than I'd anticipated to write the book, and I had to change things. And I think what I realised, or what I feel just now, anyway is the cyclical nature of politics Mm -hmm. and that we're part of a... I think when I was very young, I used to think we were part of some sort of political Darwinism, that things would get better and better and better. And I sincerely believed that there would be a revolution. Sincerely. That's what I thought. And now uh, I don't believe that. Uh, I think that there's... I think this politics is cyclical. Um, So, yeah, and that's, I think, worked its way into the book. And is that, I mean, obviously it's affected by economics, but is that the main thing it's affected by? Or do you think it, um, because the the extent of what happens, the extreme of what happens in the books where, you know, things fall apart in every way because of this plague, um, you think, well, how extreme do you have to get before a revolution would kick (laughs) in? And, um, And maybe... It would take something as extreme of this with people actually having to um, physically fend off um, people in the streets or to be uh, imprisoned without any evidence or to fight over, literally fight over food. Now, all of these things are actually happening to a greater or lesser degree, but would it take something as extreme as that for... I don't know, I don't know. And I guess, you know, I guess the last thing I would want to see is... uh, people fighting on the streets. No, no, I absolutely. Scotland I or something. Yeah. But uh, no, I think I think the cyclical nature of politics and other things in society might just be down to a really simple thing. We we all die. We die mm. at about a, you know differing differing <laughs> things but 60 to 80 let's yeah. say. Yeah. And uh, and then there's a new generation and the memory goes and so people mm-hmm. go through the same things again and you realise that uh, we respond to the generation before but we perhaps don't think so much of the experiences mm. of the generation before them, so yeah. our grandparents' generation, so a lot of, a lot of wisdom is lost and yeah. we repeat actions in different ways um, That's fascinating, I think, yeah, I think there's something really interesting in that um, and to We'll have a good time to talk about it on this, but to work out, you know, where the cycles have happened. But I, I absolutely see what you mean by that. That, um, and I suppose it goes 
back to the teenagers in the in the book who are now deciding that they're maybe not wanting what their parents want for them and, and that there are other things there that... Uh, and there are also other events that, that mean that they are dissatisfied with their situation on, on uh, Orkney. But, um, yeah, it's like you were saying, the, the, your teenagers hit a certain bit and you almost expect there to be... Um, you know, what have you got? What are you against? Well, what have you got? That kind of James Dean, Marlon Brando thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's necessary. You know, I was driving along the motorway the other day and I saw this uh, deer, young deer, and I thought, why is it down there? But I think it was possibly because it's coming up to that point where the the bigger deers kick the, the yeah. younger male ones out of the, out of the group, uh, the herd. And you know that then you end up on the side of the motorway, and that's but you go. You have to go off. Yeah, you have to go off and form your own herd somewhere. Um, Yeah, and but I think one of the things underpinning this book, and the reason that Magnus and Stevie uh, leave Orkney, they go in search of the children. The children have Mm -hmm. left. uh, The children have gone off on some. They don't know what with some strangers, and uh, the reason that they go. On this quest is to uh, to to search after the children. Oh, that's one of us. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> that's one, the, the the call from beyond. Uh, but the children they go in search of the children, and that is that is because of love, yeah. you know. And that's really I think what underpins the book, and maybe that is the constant. If we're lucky in life as well, that love is this great saving thing, and there's a great motivator as well. I think. If the first book and in the second book there was hope, you know, at the end of both of them, even though things seemed really bleak, there was the hope that there was a future and perhaps we were going to have to find that elsewhere, but it was there. And I think you're right here, the driving force is love, um, and which takes different forms. It's not just love for children, for kids, but it's for friends, it's for companions, all sorts of things. And that um, drives particularly Stevie and Magnus to, you know, it's the, the, the story about the person that finds the strength to lift the car off their child if something terrible's happened and just that kind of strength that they have that perhaps previously they would have thought that they wouldn't have had. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see that that hope and love has survived all of these, the, the last five years because it got me thinking when I thought, well, you know, the changes that have happened and we've had a series of votes that for many people, myself included, and perhaps yourself, have gone absolutely contrary to what we would have expected. And you think, for a writer, how does that change your kind of ultimate worldview? Do you think, well, I have to recalibrate, not just political, but social and, and, and moral, or, or do I still stick with the beliefs that I've had all along? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because I think, you know... Were we to go over to America and just speak to people that had voted for Trump, we wouldn't agree with them. You know, we really wouldn't. But we would probably find out that a lot of them, well, they, they still love their children. Yeah. They still love their dog. They disagree with us on many things. Um, yeah, so there's still... I guess it's <laughs> I guess it's the racism that we can't we can't, we can't uh, you know there's the, there's and I guess that's the the other thing you know if, forget about love who do you hate <laughs> <laughs> well, 
but for me, and the, the hope lies in the individuals, and mm. it's the individual relationships and the individuals who are heroic. And yeah, the problem becomes when it's the bigger, the greed or the yeah, I I can um, get this amount of money if I do these terrible things, and when it becomes bigger then and faceless then that's where this as you say justification comes in for saying well it's okay because you know it's a it's a group of people and they do this and the result is this and in the end it's for the greater good for mm, of a better thing well, that's a terrible term the greater but, good. but yeah. actually when you break it down to how individuals act in the book often there are there are as many heroes as there are villains yeah and i guess the, the thing is that there are people that are behaving really badly as well and they're putting their self-interest first uh and you know sometimes uh, lying to them there's people that take economic advantage uh people who are selfish um people who uh, i'm thinking back to to uh briar and uh the kind of sexual exploitation Mm -hmm. there of an older person younger person by an older person uh this person can say all they want that it's okay you know but actually it's unequal and yeah. I think maybe that's what it comes down to yeah. that anything that's really unequal um, is, is is not alright yeah. you know I mean we, yeah I guess know, that's right yeah and you know in any long relationship there's times when your partner pulls you up and there's times when you pull them up and you know you, you stumble along the road together and so you hold each other up at different times but uh, that's a form of equality but with this, you know, it's not okay. Yeah. So, having come to the end of your trilogy, how do you feel looking back on all three? Do you even relieved, do that? Relieved, relieved, <laughs> yeah. Because there's points, you know, the this is my eighth book, and I guess part of it is a challenge to yourself. Can you can you sustain a world over three books? Yeah. Um, and I wasn't sure that I'd have the stamina. So mm. I'm pleased to get to the... I'm pleased and relieved to get to the end, and uh, yeah, that, that's about it. Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won't going to do that again. Or take it to um, I won't continue this beyond yeah. beyond this world. Uh, certainly, the the devastation of that kind of world is still appeals mm-hmm. to me. You know, and it's one that I've lived with in the imagination for a long time. So maybe maybe there'll be a short story, but not with Stevie and Magnus, not with the sweats. You know, not in this world it would have to be a different type yeah. of uh, type of devastation um, I'm working on libretto just now for Stuart McRae in Scottish Opera and that's not set in an apocalyptic <laughs> world <laughs> although there's it has its own bleaknesses at points um, and I'm thinking about I don't know if I'll do it or not so it's another challenge uh, I think about going to the world of non-fiction oh, right. and I'd like to I'm thinking about doing something about the death of the author so a hundred author deaths, interesting right. author deaths, and um, but we'll see. I've not, I've not yeah. muted this. I'm just it's gonna too soon. Enjoy yeah. finishing. Oh, I'll just uh, you. Sh- you always need to be playing around with something, you know. Yeah. So I'm gonna play around with this, and I've got some essays to write and things. Um, but I've got a novel in mind, but I think I won't start no. it for six months or so. Um. I'd like to mention before we finish is the collection you worked on, the Ghost Story Collection. Oh, yes. You must have loved putting that together. Loved it. A hundred stories, is that right? Yeah, one hundred ghost stories. And it's just called Ghost 100 Stories to Read in the Dark, which just made me laugh so much because you can't read in the dark. But 
<laughs> I hadn't thought about that, yeah. yeah. I did that with Head of Seuss Publishers, and I just loved it. It mm. was... Uh, because to put a hundred stories together, you had to read so many more. I didn't keep I didn't keep yeah. tally how many, um, and I start with Pliny the Younger, and I end I think with James Robertson with a story that he'd written in the year that I was putting it mm-hmm. together. But there's a great deal of I don't know balancing to be done in a big book like that, and I wanted to think about gender representation, mm-hmm. uh, subject matter. There are different things that make us scared. And different intersections, quite a few uh, intersections with sci-fi and fantasy mm-hmm. um, and political things come in again. And, of course, length. Because if you have the book too big, then the spine breaks. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to have quite a strict word yeah. length. Um, and it was also a book, as I made it, I kept on having to stop. And I don't believe in ghosts or the supernatural. Mm-hmm. I just don't. But... My unconscious clearly does, because as I put it it together, I'd have these horrifying dreams, really devastating (laughs) dreams, really alive dreams about ghosts and things. And I would have to stop for a week and then come back to it. Um, But I've now got a massive collection of uh, books and ghost story books and all of this. It's a world... I'd like to go back to it in some Mm. way. I'm not quite sure how, um, but I, I loved it. And I loved the way that politics goes through these stories they're often about marginalization and uh there's particular points you know where like during the suffragette campaign yeah. you find uh, a lot of the women that are writing these stories are suffragettes or the ways that uh, governesses you know in the victorian era that these people that are in the in-between are the ones that are liable to be ghosts or see ghosts yeah. um and i think maybe this has helped to bring me to the idea of the death of the author book because each story I had to do a little 50 word um, bio of the person that had written it and I realised what I was interested in was anything stupid you know that happened (laughs) but also the way that they died I always seem to put in they died in this way or they died in that way and one of the devastating things of course I I arranged it chronologically you've got to arrange it in some way so chronologically and one of the devastating things was to get to the Early twentieth century mm. and have you know killed at the Somme, killed at of the Somme, killed, you know all the all the uh, deaths through war, you know, and you saw the ways in which people died. So that's it sparked my morbidity, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably there already. Um, so this new book, if it happens, may come out of that book. Everything leads you to something else. Yeah. Well, that sounds fascinating, Louise. And thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) And we'll be back soon with um, someone completely different. Thank you. And that was our podcast with Louise Welsh. And I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back um, very soon. So thank you again for listening. And we'll see you then. Cheers. (laughs) 